Uh, if you're not there yet, please open your Bibles to Malachi 1. That will be on uh, page 801 of the church Bibles. So for the rest of our time together this morning, we'll be looking at first uh, section from uh, verse 1 all the way down to, uh, down to verse 5. So as one of the seven deadly sins, it is simply referred to as indifference or laziness or apathy. It's called the noonday demon. Or should I say it was called the noonday demon by those that lived in the, in the Middle Ages, the medievals as it were. And it's more than that after Sunday lunch uh, feeling of drowsiness. It is a deeply spiritual problem. One writer described it as the spiritual dejection that has given up on the pursuit of God. It's an inner despair that finally slumps into an attitude of, I don't care. It's the sin which believes in nothing. It cares for nothing. It pursues nothing. It interferes in nothing. It enjoys nothing. Finds purpose in nothing. It lives for nothing and it only remains alive because there's nothing to die for. Indifference. It corrupts the soul and should I add, it rots the church. The I don't care attitude that lies beneath the surface can very easily lead us to a place of doubt where we question whether God cares for us, where we question God's love for us. And I want to suggest to you that the noonday demon poses a great threat to the people of God today just as it did to the people of God in Malachi's day. Malachi's day is around 450 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And at this time, the prophet is commissioned to, uh, you know, to address, to confront this great concern. So we see there in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, not much is known about Malachi the prophet. In fact, there's, uh, uh, there's reasonable doubt as to whether this is his actual name. But this much we know. Malachi means, simply means, my messenger. And who is the my? God, the Lord, Yahweh. And what Malachi is about to deliver is an oracle. Oracle, that word can be translated to bear a burden. It says oracle in the ESV, which we use here. In the NIV, it will say prophecy. It is, but it's narrowed down to a particular kind of prophecy. And the New King James even simplifies it more by stating it for what it is, a burden. But this is what we have here. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
It is a burden that the prophet bears. Malachi is not your happy-go-lucky, self-styled, so-called prophet like those we, uh, we see today or hear about. Makes me wonder how they missed COVID-19. Or some of them, uh, in the recent elections uh, in, the, in the US, they had, they had somebody else winning, but prophets, so they call themselves. But it's not the case with Malachi. Malachi is not the type here. He's a man burdened. He's a man weighed down. He sees society as God sees it and he feels the situation as God feels it. His message is not about something that's going to happen, but rather it's about something that's already happening. It's about spiritual indifference, spiritual apathy, spiritual sloth, spiritual laziness. And his aim is to remind and reassure God's people of God's love for them in order that they may repent and turn from their sinful ways. Now, feelings of apathy don't just appear out of thin air. There's, a, there's always a context. There's usually a context. And so it is in this case here. You see, around 80 to 100 years or so earlier, God's people had come back from the period of enslavement in Babylon. Babylon, which is today, uh, which is present-day Iraq. And it was quite remarkable, really, because um, enslaved people, historically, uh, well, remained that, enslaved. But what's remarkable here is that God's people were released. Prophets like Isaiah prophesied. They had prophesied that God would move the hearts of pagan kings, uh, not only to set the Jews free, but to ensure that they were given a safe passage to their homeland, that they would get uh, help to rebuild their country, starting with the city of Jerusalem. So the people had homes to live in. Uh, the temple had been rebuilt. They had a temple to worship in and a city to dwell in. There was a sense of normality being reestablished at the time. And although they were under Persian rule, the government was not giving them a hard time. And that's precisely when the rot began to set in. You see, their devotion to God had eroded. And as a result, their worship became diluted. It became formal. They became indifferent. But you see, we are no strangers to this. For many people in your Christian, your Christian life has become indifferent. It's become easy and comfortable. There's a, there's a lack of spiritual urgency in your own life or collectively as a church. The enthusiasm which followed your conversion has cooled. 
The faith which at one time burned so brightly within you is now no more than a little flicker. The steady round of everyday life with its stress and temptations has somehow cooled your spiritual temperature. Well, let me tell you this morning that God is burning for you. He wants to remind and assure you of his love for you. And this is what we will be unpacking for the rest of our time together. The question of God's love, the quality of God's love, and the assurance of God's love. The question of God's love, the quality of God's love, and the assurance of God's love. Look at uh, the latter end of verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The question of God's love. How have you loved us? Now bear in mind, this, this, this question is packed with cynicism. It's packed with reverence. They're not really asking to know. It's more like a shocking. I love them. How have you loved us? You see, believers very rarely wake up in the morning with the question, does God exist? But it can happen that a believer does raise the question, does God care? Does God really love me? And of course, there's always a number of reasons. There may be a number of reasons as to why we have a tendency to doubt God's love for us. And I'll very quickly, briefly outline three. One, it may be due to a faulty view of what God's love actually entails. It's not a strange thing that someone who loves us may allow us to go through difficulty from time to time. I mean, after all, which, which loving parents will always be cuddly with their child and will not welcome, you know, some form of hardship for them so that they will learn to cope with life and they will, you know, develop a strong character. Or two, it may be due to the fact that the love relationship has not been nurtured. And so we feel like God has distanced himself from us. Yet it is we who have done little. Very little to, he to help, you know, to keep that faith fresh and alive. Very little to cultivate that love relationship with God. And this is the way sometimes marriages go, isn't it? They die slowly from within. Slowly in degrees, a, a husband and wife may drift apart. Communication cools, affection dries out, when suddenly, to their horror, they realize they become strangers living under the same roof. And friends, this can very easily happen in our relationship with God. It happens when we fail to take advantage of the means of grace 
that God has provided to enable us to keep our spiritual marriage fresh and vibrant. Or it may be, thirdly, that we find ourselves in circumstances which make it difficult to, to square the belief that God is almighty and God is all loving. And I wonder what your circumstances is this morning. Perhaps you're faced with a, 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 a seriously sick child, a child with a major dis, uh, disability. Perhaps your spouse has grossly uh, offended you to the extent that you don't want anything to do with them anymore, ever. Or maybe you've lost a child or a loved one. Or maybe you've lost your job. Or perhaps your livelihood is uh, constantly under threat given the uncertainties that are a result of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Fill in the gap. Identify your situation. But you see, this is when the question arises. Where is God? Does he really love me? If so, how? How has he loved me? Now clearly for whatever reason, this is how Malachi's contemporary felt. Their circumstances were favorable in their own eyes. After all, the temple didn't amount to much. I meant to say their circumstances weren't favorable in their own eyes. The temple wasn't as great as it was in the glory days of Solomon. The economy wasn't exactly thriving. They had no army of their own for their own protection. Given the vulnerable state they were in, having returned all as many years, albeit from exile. The covenant promises of God appeared to be nothing more than an unattainable promise. An attainable dream. They had lost any sense of wonder of what God had done for them in allowing them to return from exile in Babylon and in enabling them to rebuild the temple. They could hardly see what they already had and all they knew was they did not have all that they wanted. And unfortunately, sadly, all they wanted was defined in increasingly worldly terms. And it's in this situation that God directs his word, his oracle. He reminds them of some basic heartwarming truths which they need to hear. And we too will need to hear. If we're going to enter into the joy of being called God's people. I have loved you, says the Lord. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
Now, notice God does not confront the situation. He doesn't, God, uh, he doesn't confront God's people with a, a Bible bashing because of their sinful behavior, but rather with a tender reminder of his love. He corrects their faulty notions of love. I have loved you. Which also means I love you and I will always love you. And this is not God's general love. It is a specific covenant love. It's a love which sticks together through thick and thin. It's a love that sandwiched with super glue, if you like. It's the love of God. It is the love that God has for his people in a way that he has for no one else. It is a love for the unlovely. And that is partly what lies behind this reference to Jacob and Esau. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now this is a story, as you know, that goes back to Genesis 25. And actually Paul echoes it in Romans 9. It's about the birth of, two tw- of twins, Isaac. And Jacob, sorry. <laughs> it's a bath of twins to Isaac and Rebekah. The first twin is Esau, and the second twin is Jacob. The older twin, Esau, the younger one, Jacob. And Jacob, as we know, became the father of the, uh, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And even before they had done anything, God chose to bless Jacob and not Esau. And he did so solely because of sheer grace. It wasn't because Jacob was going to turn out to be some model of faith. I mean, (laughs) the man was a crook. He was a cheat. He was a coward. Esau, the older brother who was meant to receive the inheritance, wasn't up to much either. Uh, We know that he sold his inheritance rice for a single meal. But the point is, it is God's free sovereign choice who he chooses to bless. I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you not to be thrown back by this hate language. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's simply a Hebrew way of speaking that's not to be taken literally. It's a characteristic way of describing, you know, loving selection, loving choice, loving election. I understand you've been going through the doctrines of grace in the recent months, so no need to belabor this. But it's all the same thing, and uh, it's, 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 it's here to show us uh, that there's a, a natural contrast between being specially chosen and not being specially chosen. That's the point he's trying to make. And that's what God's saying here. He is saying to you and to me that I love you, and my love for you is not dependent upon your religious. Or your moral performance. It doesn't fluctuate uh, like, like an emotional barometer based on, uh, uh, on how you're doing, based on how you're behaving. 
For just as my love for your ancestor Jacob, I choose to love you and my love for you is fixed. It's fixed like the North Star. And that is meant to bring comfort and not complacency. It's meant to give us confidence and not doubt. It's meant to stir, to spur us to worship. It's meant to encourage us to check our devotion. And to make us turn away from our indifference. You see, if we thought for a moment that the intensity or the the surety of God's love was dependent upon our intensity of our love for him, then we'd be left with nothing but uncertainty. Because we we can only love by his help. We love because he first loved us. Human love might be it's always changing but divine love isn't it is fixed it is unchanging and it's inexhaustible that's the quality it's the quality of God's love I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert If Adam says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country. The people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You see, there's an objection here. God's people throwing an objection. What about Esau's descendants, the Edomites? They've always been a pretty bad lot. If you go back in your Bibles, you'll see that they, they, they tried to make things up for the Israelites. The Jews are crying now. They're objecting here. They tried to mess things up for us. Remember, at the time of the Exodus, they refused us permission to travel through their territory. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, they threw a street party and rejoiced in our captivity. How does their getting off the hook tie in with your love for us, O God? Are we really that special? They ask. And in this context, we do ask those questions, do we not? You see, the problem was that they were not operating to God's time scale, which is much bigger than theirs. We too need to be reminded that God's time scale is much bigger than ours. It's true that Adam was not carried off into captivity, as was Israel. But then Israel returned when it should not have returned. And what is more is that the Edomites had just been attacked by a nasty group of people. Uh, uh, Look at the latter end of verse 3. And we see God's hand of judgment in this. 
And although they may claim in verse 4 that we will recover, we will rebuild, God will make sure that they won't. And you know what? They never did. And you know, as Christians, we may wonder about the strength of God's love for us. When we see wicked people prospering and Christians suffering, but this is when we have to think long term, isn't it? This is when we have to play the long game. After all, there's a heaven to be gained and there's a hell to be avoided. Yes, there may be short-term gain now for people who reject God and give his people grief and mock them. But there's an, there's a, there's an eternal loss for them. Which makes the language of Malachi when speaking of a hill country laid waste and a heritage left to jackals of the desert look mild. That language looks mild in comparison. For the Lord Jesus spoke of hell as a place of un quenchable fire and that is when we will see the full measure of God's love when we see what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for which is an eternity of joy and bliss with him when we will, we will enjoy him forever and ever. He says in verse 5, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond, beyond the border of Israel. You see, God is not, uh, is not a tiny uh, deity confined to a small piece of land in the Persian Empire. He is the sovereign one. He is the Lord of all the earth. He is the one who causes nations to rise. And he is the one who causes nations to fall. He is the one who chooses the most unlovely and unlovable upon which is love. will stick. And notice who this God is who will achieve all his plans for his people. He is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Now this time, this time is used to describe God, uh, uh, used to describe God appears, appears actually more often in Malachi than in any other book. Malachi is a small book, but it does appear more often in, in Malachi than any other book in the Bible. You know? And if we could just get, get a glimpse of, of, uh, of God's vast army, an invisible army, if we could only just get a glimpse of that, all comparisons, all worldly comparisons would fade. The largest land, air and sea operation in the world on D-Day at Normandy. You know, that's the greatest invasion, the greatest assembly, military assembly there, that there's ever been in human history. And that pale 
pales in comparison to God's vast and invisible army. In fact, D-Day would look like a collection of children's boats in a paddling pool by comparison. But you see, the love of God is backed up by the strength of God. And it's a love that cannot and will not let us go. So we ask, but how have you loved us? Malachi points his contemporaries back to their national history. God's oracle today points us to a place that is far better than Malachi's contemporaries would ever know. It points us to this lonely, desolate hill on which there are three wooden crosses. And then it points us to the one who occupies the cross in the middle. And it says to us, There, there I have loved you. I have loved you that much. That is the ultimate gift from me. There is nothing more, nothing left for me to give. God says, and it is by kneeling at the cross that, my friend, you will find the only medicine for spiritual indifference and spiritual apathy. The apathy that may be plaguing you and any doubts of God's love that may be haunting you. The answer is at the cross. The medicine is at the cross. It's at the cross that we're humbled, for there's no ground for boasting. It's there that we find ground for worship. It's there that we can draw confidence and courage for our evangelism. Knowing that God has his own elect out there. And every time we share the good news of the great gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that God's elect will respond. They will spring to life. We don't know who they are, but he knows them. And that is our confidence. So friends, God's love God's love should cause us to meditate on our condition and let it simmer for a bit. God's love ought to humble us. God's love ought to motivate us to worship him. When we get together and sing hymns like the one we just sang, I mean, get into the mind of Charles Wesley, writing that down. And can it be that I 
should gain an interest in the Saviour's love. Me, a sinner such as me? He gained an interest in me. Or when we get to sing that we sing it with all our hearts because we know it. We know that this is God's love while we were sinners. 